0: If we are at the end of our life, what is that eulogy going to say? What are people going to say about us when they're standing up there? What would we want to say about ourselves when we're standing up there? And if we were to write that now, are we living that way
1: today? Welcome back to an all-new season of Off the Gram. The show where we bring you straight into the trenches with us to help you live your best life, channel your inner girl boss, and navigate the ever-changing landscapes of wellness and social media.
2: Hey, Jane. Hey, hi. So welcome, everybody, to our spooky Halloween episode. I feel like I should have sound effects.
1: Ooh. ooh, ooh.
2: <laughs> um, so I don't know about you, but I love me some Halloween, Heidi. Are you like a Halloween, Sam? So it's interesting. I... I'm not a Halloween girl. No. I'm not.
1: No. And here's why, though. I've, like, figured it out. I was allergic to dairy growing up. I still am, right? So I couldn't eat a single candy that I trick-or-treated. So I had to, like, give my entire haul to my brother every year because, like, nobody was passing out Skittles back then because they were, like, giant bags, Mm. right? And now they have, like, single portion size. But it was Milky Way, Kit Kat, like, all the milk chocolate, and I couldn't eat any of it. And then I spent 20 years of my life, you know as a job dressing up and doing hair and makeup and costumes. And that feels like work to me. It's work. Like that's what I associate with work and like, Oh God, here I go for like a 25 hour day at a trailer and like, I'm in a costume and great. It's so I have these not like fabulous
2: associations with it. I love me some Halloween. I, personally, I personally it like first of all it draws me back to like my first thought is like my my twenties. I immediately go back to like am I going to be a slutty nurse or a slutty police woman and then I'm like oh yeah oh, mom oh. never mind neither of those things. And then, but then I think about the joy of my kids and having moved into a new neighborhood, like during COVID, our first Halloween here was so weird. Like people mm. definitely did trick or treating, but everybody was at the end of their driveway with a table and they were like throwing the candy in the people's <laughs> like, back. With a, you know, with a pincher, like so oh, they didn't even touch the candy. Yes, yes It was so yeah. weird, but like we did it and it was a nice way in my, my neighborhood here in Pennsylvania, goes all out. I mean, people get super spooky with their front lawns and like, you know, so that's really fun. And we kind of live in the country. There's like a hayride like across the street from me. So it's very that's like, so fun. It's super fun. Lots of pumpkins, lots of like hay and just country things. I mean, I don't know. My favorite Halloween
1: was the one we did together at Pine Ridge Dude Ranch.
2: Oh my God. <laughs> that was so fun. You see, <laughs> that's, that's the other thing. We had been on vacation at Pine Ridge Dude Ranch. And I also like, I think Halloween just takes over the whole month of October, which is fun. So if you are somewhere, there's usually like a costume moment or a spooky parade. Like, I, that stuff just—I love it. I'm so here for it. Please, I went into CVS to pick up a prescription the other day and came out like $207 poorer because I was like, I obviously need this skeleton doing yoga on a black pumpkin like for <laughs> <all> my house, clearly. <laughs> so wait, uh, now I need to go to CVS. Oh my right? god, I had the bus stop. Don't <laughs> go, you're going to be poor. Like, let me tell you, I just—my husband was like, "Are you for real? For real? Like you bought all this stuff?" I was like, "I sure did, George." So, all right, quick, like round round robin between mm-hmm. you and I. Costumes this year for the kids. What are your kids being?
1: Okay. So I love a good theme, but this year they didn't want to uh, acquiesce.
2: So <laughs> Alexia- I had the, the same problem. Like no family themes. We're just going
1: like rogue. Yeah, exactly. So Alexia wanted to be Glinda from Wicked, the Broadway show, not the Wizard of Oz. And unfortunately they don't have that costume, but so she's being Glinda from Wizard of Oz, but we're just, you know- she can – because I guess – it so in the show, she's blue, and in the movie, she's pink. So, oh, well, she's still really excited because Galinda was her favorite character. And then Priscilla, um, most – I don't know. Our listeners may or may not know. So my twins are Priscilla and Alexia, and P and A spells panda. And I realized that while I was pregnant with the twins, and so I started referring to them as panda in utero. And so everyone – that's friends with me and family were like, oh, it's panda, 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 panda. So like, they're like a collective. And so we have so much panda stuff. And this year the twins got really into it for some reason. Like you're seven now. And like all the baby rockers were pandas, but like, okay. Um, they have a lot of panda stuffies. <laughs> so Priscilla's a panda. <laughs> and it's like, it's really cute costume. And then James is an excavator. I actually bought him that costume two years ago. It was his like age size and he can't wear it till this year. It was so Aww. big. Because you know it's like one of those 3D ones that like is like a blippy excavator or just like an excavator. It's it's an excavator. So like he has a vest, and the actual 3D excavator oh. comes forward and back Whoa.
2: from it. That was yeah. so fun. It's like a Diggerland moment. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Mason and Asher, who are they? Okay. So Asher um, is going to be Bingo from Bluey and <laughs> Mason is going to be the guy from the Lego movie. And George and I, I don't know, man. I mean, look, we've always done a family theme. Like one year I was, Mason and I were police officers and George was a convict, like a prisoner. And That's then amazing. one year I was pregnant with Asher, so I wasn't feeling very sexy. So Mason was a firefighter. And George and I were fire. <laughs> <So, laughs> we're like a shirt awesome. with flame on it in a red wig. So I love, love a family theme, but this year I think I'm just gonna have to like figure it out and go rogue. I don't know. Maybe I'll go back to being a sexy nurse. I don't know. <laughs> I'll figure it out. All right. So welcome to the theme of Halloween. Let's just kind of get into this because I think you know in today's episode we're we're covering a topic that's not always easy. But I did figure that maybe this Halloween timeframe made it a little easier for us all to handle. Dr. Amy Robbins is a clinical psychologist, consciousness, that's a hard word to say, consciousness expert and spiritual intuitive and medium who helps humans awaken to life by embracing death. While there's a tremendous sadness, grief, and pain when one suffers a loss, Amy makes death palpable yet approachable. She believes that by dissecting death, we can start to live life more full of purpose, courage, and intention. In addition to her clinical practice, Amy is the director of mental health at Beyond, a holistic wellness club in Chicago. She also delves into all of the fascinating questions about life, death, consciousness, and what it all means with some of the most renowned experts in the field in her podcast, Life, Death, and the Space Between. Listen to
1: this show if you are really scared to talk about death, but deep down, you'd like to be a little less afraid you've recently suffered a loss and want help with new perspective on how to process that grief, or you want to learn how to best embrace life here on earth, discovering your deepest purpose.
2: Welcome, Dr. Robbins. I personally am so glad to have you here. And of course, today's topic is somewhat tongue-in-cheek, right? Because like we made this a Halloween show, and I think we can all agree there's something kind of Deliciously spooky about Halloween. It's like the one time of year we give ourselves permission, I guess, to like indulge in, in like kooky fantasies about the morbid. But I think we're all being honest. We're all just really terrified of death. So the only way for us maybe to like deal is just to lighten the mood from time to time. So can you start by telling us what made you personally get into this field?
0: So I think like most people, right? Like almost everyone would have has a death anxiety. I had the experience of a loss at a young-ish age. I was 18 years old, and my aunt died from juvenile onset diabetes. She was waiting for a kidney and pancreas transplant. She was 48, which is terrifying to me now still because I'm approaching that age, and it seemed much older then, and now as I'm approaching it, it's like, holy cow, it's actually not that far away, and she was really young. And so I was really faced with this tragic kind of of out-of-order loss and struggled for many years with my grief and trying to understand my grief and understand how to make sense of grief in the world and with my own anxiety and how her death was contributing in so many ways to my anxiety. And I spent many years in therapy exploring death and loss and grief and and all the big feelings. And then when I was 24 in Grad school, I had uh, an experience where she came to me in what I now know was a visit. Some people would call it a dream. And it was right before my cousin's wedding. And she shared with me, she came to me very clearly. I saw her. She showed me my mom standing at at our kitchen sink that I grew up in loading the dishwasher. And she said, tell your mom I'm going to be there. She doesn't need to, to be upset. I will be at the wedding. And then she showed me another image of my uncle pushing a baby in a stroller and said, let him know when he's out walking, I hear him talking to me. At the time, my cousin was was young, his son. And so I woke up from this dream, which, again, visit. You know, some people will say it was a dream. It was absolutely not. It is as clear to me now as I'm retelling it as it was then And it felt like she had left. Like, I felt like as she was sort of leaving, I was like trying to hold her back. Like, don't go. I have more to talk to you about. And I called my mom that morning and I said, I had this this visit from Aunt Linda. She came to me. You were standing at the kitchen sink. She told me to tell you, don't be upset. She'll be at the wedding. And my mom started crying. She said, I was standing at the kitchen sink last night talking to her saying, I can't believe you're not going to be at the wedding. And then... Same thing with my uncle, he shared with me that is when he talks to her, when he's out walking and he's always talking about his kids and things like that. So this really kind of got me very curious. But for years I shut it down, then my grandfather passed away and it happened again with a visit and then it started happening with patients, loved ones, and then I noticed my own anxiety around death decreased. It was like I wasn't so scared about death and dying anymore. I had this new comfort with death, which made most of my anxiety dissipate. And I felt like I was in this race against time before, and then that was gone. And so I became very, very curious about what happens when we die, what happens after we die and how that can really help people live more freely by
1: embracing and surrendering to this notion of death. So you, you just mentioned anxiety, your anxiety around death. And all of, I think all of us have anxiety around death, right, to a degree. I, don't, I, I know you can't speak in absolutes, but many of us, and like we have anxiety and we worry. We worry. And I have a lot of anxiety. I worry a lot. And I think as humans, we're conditioned to do that, especially as moms. (laughs) I think it gets amplified when you have children. I've heard that you talk about, I'm like pulling a quote, (laughs) embracing the fact that death is awaiting us all as a way to truly let go and enjoy life. So I love the concept of that. Can you sort of flesh it out for us, please? I I totally get it logically. It just seems like one of those situations where it's like easy to say, not as easy to do. So can you help us? Sure. So
0: I think I would say that I have a contemplative death practice. So I do think about death pretty consistently throughout the course of the day. And I ask myself those questions and we were talking just for a minute before, but I was saying last night my son is nine and he's he asked me to read with him. And I was saying it could be the last time, right? Like I never know when it's going to be that last time. And I think if, and and I meant not not because he's going to die, but because he's getting older and it could be the last time I read with him. But I think when we can integrate that type of practice into our lives, we can think about if this is my last time, is this how I want that interaction to be? If this is the last time I say goodbye to my Partner, my child, my parent, you know, what do I want that to be like? How do I want them to feel about our interactions? And if you can do that on a consistent basis, it starts to shift how you live. And then when we talk about all these other spiritual pieces of living, living in a higher vibration, living in alignment with yourself, living in alignment with your soul, with your what I call essence, different than purpose. All of those things start to fall into place because you're thinking differently about what it means to live. Because that that mirror for death is always
1: sort of right right there staring you in the face. So when you were talking about like how it's like a positive to flip it, to be like, is this the way I would want it the last time – I'm someone who struggled with panic attacks for many years and I think that's because I dealt with a lot of death early in life and people like getting ripped out of my life that were very unexpected um, with no warning And, um, and I think that like sometimes when my kids get like overly upset that I'm walking away or leave, you know that I have to leave and I'm like do they know something I don't know? Am I going to die? Am I never going to see them again? And I have like a meltdown. So mm-hmm. how do you flip it? Because for me, that thought triggers even more anxiety mm-hmm. that this could be the last time. Right. And what we how know- How do you flip it into something positive?
0: Well, I think what we know about anxiety is that right, exposure and response prevention is the best way to deal with these sort of panic attacks. So how are we exposing ourselves to this concept? How are we talking about it? How are we getting more comfortable with it? I'm not saying that I am in a place where if something God forbid happened to my children or my partner or someone I love, it wouldn't be hard. It wouldn't totally derail me. Like this doesn't, that this doesn't make that go away. It just allows you to feel more comfortable being with the feeling of it, right? We are all going to die there. That's, that's the guarantee we have in life is that we're going to die. That's about it. And so when we can get comfortable with that, you know, when you can sit with like, I am going to die. Am I ready to die right now? Absolutely not. If I found out tomorrow that I had some terminal illness, would that derail me? Absolutely. But how I live up to that point can't be waiting for the fear of that to happen because it's going to happen regardless. I love your frankness
2: about it. And I really do. And I think I personally have always had, this is Jamie speaking, the opposite of like exposure therapy. Like when I hear anything, if I was listening to this podcast right now, right? Like if I was somebody at home, there's a part of me that would be like, I'm turning it off. It's too sad, too hard, too hard. Turn it off. But if that is always your proclivity, then you're like the princess and the pea. And every single thing rattles you. And God forbid, the littlest hint of something sad or scary comes into your life and it just completely shakes you to your core. And so I've actually been pushing myself lately to have hard conversations, to listen to sad things. Cause especially like what Heidi said earlier, as a mom, my wimp meter, my wimp, my, my wimpiness level went up by a thousand percent. I used to love to watch, you know, 48 hours mystery and Dateline. And, you know, I was like that girl that like was the meme that loved a good murder podcast to go to sleep. Not anymore. I'm just like, if the world freaks me out because I'm a mom and I'm more protective. But if I don't ever make myself think these big existential thoughts, I'm not prepared. And lately, I've been thinking a lot with my own husband. He's 20 years older than me. And I think about it all the time when we have some silly tiff. And this is the first thing I make myself think of. One day in this world, he's not going to be there.
0: Mm-hmm. Is
2: this how you would want to leave it? And it does. It reframes. Well, and and I think, you know,
0: avoidance doesn't help us face things. I mean, I've spoken with people who have lost children tragically, who've lost partners tragically, who've gotten in touch with their loved ones when they cross over, which we can get to in a minute because I think that that also really helps.
2: Yeah, I have a lot of questions about that. Yeah,
0: but these people have have experienced, like, the depth of what I imagine the pain is of being human. Like, I, you, you both are talking about your kids. I have kids. I can't imagine anything more painful than that. I, I, I just think it's the worst thing that could possibly ever happen, and I think we all imagine that, and people always say, I could never imagine. I can't imagine what you're going through. That's actually not true. None of us want to imagine that, but we all can. And we're can I swear on here? Yes, you can. Okay. We're so fucking scared of that, and we should be, yeah. because it's yeah. scary and it, it would be painful. But yeah. fearing it isn't going to diminish the pain that you will feel if and when it happens. And what it will do is take away your your life. It will rob you of your life now. Fearing what
2: is potential, what will potentially happen to all of us, right? Well, okay, so let's talk about the mediumship thing. I think you know, I know on your podcast you interview all sorts of experts like researchers in the fields of brain science and near death experiences and mediumship. I think a lot of us hear mediumship and think like is that really a thing? And I personally, I don't know if thinking about an afterlife makes me more or less afraid of death, but it's certainly fascinating. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Obviously, you had your experience with a visit And then where did it go from there?
0: Yeah, so I had several experiences with a visit that sort of culminated with a patient's loved one coming to me, at which point I was like, okay, I got to get a handle on this because I can't have patient's loved ones coming to me in session. I don't know what to do with that information. It's very disheartening. And it's a very different part. When I'm working clinically, I'm very much in my left brain
2: when i'm so you 're saying, as a clinical psychologist, just so our listeners are understanding, so you were doing sessions with like you know in clinical psychology, and all of a sudden you were having these intuitive moments, and you were like, "What do I do with this?"
0: Yes, and I would have glimpses of past lives of what I think again, do I know a hundred percent for sure, No, but it seemed like it was because it would be very clearly not this life, and so I started having these kind of hits of intuition and wasn't really sure what to do with them and what to make of them. So I, I started pursuing mediumship to just see and I started working with someone to learn how to how to control when the information was coming in. There was a period of time where my house, this is going to sound completely bananas and I get that, was un, literally under siege. Lights were going on and off all the time. Oh the whole God. house would like the whole electrical system was like going like and I had to call my neighbors and say, "Did you did you just experience this cuz was there like a power surge in the neighborhood? And one of my neighbors, who's a friend of mine, was like, no, I think it's the spirits. And it was when I had just started kind of telling people that I was having these experiences.
2: You were like the ghost whisperer. You're Jennifer Love Hewitt.
0: So, so I really wanted to understand how I could control it. And was this a path I wanted to go down in terms of bringing this to people? I did three months of mediumship reading. I opened it up to friends and family But I think I found, one, I I really enjoy very deep work with people. The work I do is long-term, traditional, psychodynamic psychotherapy. So really looking at people's relationships, relationship patterns, how how that foundation was laid, how their unconscious is affecting what they're doing today, and felt like I didn't want to give that up. And also felt like I wasn't, I was probably 80% accurate with my medium readings. But I'm a bit of a perfectionist, re- recovering perfectionist, and wanted to be better than that. And there are mediums out there who are, and I feel like if you are pursuing a medium, it it can be such a vulnerable experience. If you've lost someone you love, you are often feeling desperate to connect with them. And if someone came to me, I wanted to be sure that I was going to be like as good as I could be and I'm not, I don't believe, I think we all have the abilities. If you've talked to mediums, they'll say that. But I do think there are some people that are better than others, right? There's the Michael Jordans and there's the supporting cast. And I was not a Michael Jordan of mediumship. There are Michael Jordans of mediumship out there. And so I wanted to let, I want those people to do what they are experts at and allow people to go there and really experience the profound, profound, shift that can happen when you connect with your loved one. The other piece of that is that I also found that in my own life, being able to connect myself was really the selling point for me. I had gone to a couple medium, large group medium readings. They're amazing with some of these mediums that are top notch. And I always walked away a skeptic still. I still do. But I can't, I can't deny my own personal experience with and that's where
1: the proof has been for me. That's amazing. I'm like, I'm still on the flickering lights that we passed that, But I'm like, oh my god! <laughs> my my Mel- best friend is in Scotland at a castle right now, and she's like, I didn't sleep all last night because the ghosts wouldn't calm down. And I'm like, Ugh. exactly. Well, my kids are so funny. There.
0: They're always like, oh, there's Grandma D, my grandma who passed away, who like started blinking like right after she died. The lights were going crazy, and so they they like refer to the lights as and so I was laughing last week. My daughter sent me a text and she said it was a picture of like different jobs. And it was one of a funeral home director. And she was like, I want to be this when I grow up. And I was like, do we talk about death too much in my house? <laughs> oh, my God.
2: <laughs> That's amazing.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, you'll see. She still has some years to decide. Right. right? She does. And she does. Maybe she'll be the Michael Jordan of mediums. Who knows? Probably not. But- she thinks it's all weird. Well, you never know. But okay, so obviously you speak to so many experts in the field of transitions to death as well as grief counseling. So what what are some of the sort of key insights that you've gleaned on end-of-life experiences? And are there a few key lessons that we can learn from those at the end of their life to better empower us to live our lives here on Earth?
0: So there's the experience of when people are crossing over what they see, say, share, uh, Lisa Smart actually wrote a great book called, I think it's Final Words, and she talks about the the common words, the things that people say as they're moving towards death, and often it's loved ones coming through, you know, they they are saying like there's so-and-so, that the veil thins between life and death, and so there's this ability to start connecting to the other side even before a soul fully leaves the body. So as someone is moving towards death, oftentimes their soul can come back and forth and traverse the two worlds. And if you're paying attention, like hospice workers will share this, that you you notice it. You see it. You see. And from the medical perspective, they they will often say, and I don't know the medical lingo, but that's like whatever... Chemicals are being released in our brain, and that's often how they excuse near-death experiences, is that there are certain chemicals. I think it's DMT, which is similar to what is also happens in a psychedelic experience, but those chemicals are released, and that's what creates this, this experience. But it's pretty profound, and, and there are people who also report shared death experiences. So William J. Peters has written Shared Crossings as his book. And he talks about when you're sitting with someone as they're dying, and you have an alternate perceptual experience that mirrors theirs or doesn't, but you, you see a soul leave a body, or the room starts to shapeshift, and you have these experiences as
2: people are moving towards death. So that's sort of the spiritual. Wild. Very wild. I have a question. This is kind of hearkening back to what we spoke about earlier, um, and it's deeply personal. My son- Is quite terrified of death. He thinks about it a lot, especially at night. He calls me into his room with fears that that he will die overnight or that maybe he's already dead and he's living in this like other side. You know, they're very big thoughts. He's only seven. Um, or he's very scared that me or my husband, you know, Mm -hmm. will pass overnight Mm -hmm. and it, it really keeps him up. So as a clinical psychologist, how do you recommend we talk to our kids about death and the afterlife? I, I, well,
0: afterlife, I think, is different. So I think that is, is a very personal, like what you choose to share, what you believe. You know, that is, I think, a very personal journey that each person has to go on and figure out for themselves. Like, obviously, in my house, we do talk about it. We talk about past lives. We talk about souls and where they go. And But I have a comfort with it that I'm comfortable you know discussing i think first of all we want to normalize it as it's age appropriate right so we can talk about it in terms of you know trees right it's fall the trees are starting to change and shift and and then they'll move into like what looks like death this dormant period where there's no leaves if you're somewhere cold where i am there's no more leaves on the tree and it's a normal transition you know i think if you have pets pets are usually a really good way even if it's just a fish to start getting kids comfortable with this concept that everything does die. And then you can take it to that other level if you feel comfortable. Like, I believe that. And you it doesn't have to be that there's an afterlife. It can be, I believe that even when we die, parts of us still live on in the people we love. And I love you. And I love, you know, and Daddy loves you. And you will carry us in your heart forever. You know, even if we're not here will still be with you because you know who we are and you know, you know, we're, we're inside of you. We're a part of you. And so when you can show that love as well, you know, death is, death is love. Grief is love. It's all, the, the harder we grieve, it's because we loved that hard. And that's a beautiful thing. But I think the more we can talk with our kids and normalize it and also ask him, like, what do, what do you think happens when we die? You know, don't be afraid to shut down the conversation, but open it up. Like, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what do you think happens when we die? You know, what there's great kids' books out about death. Have you
1: read
2: The Invisible String, Jane? Yeah, actually my my uh like a wonderful person in my life, Ava, bought it for Mason when he was just about 4. So that is a yes. I should pull that one out actually. It's been on the shelf for too long. I also think
0: like those caterpillars, have you ever seen the the caterpillar kits where you can watch the caterpillar turn into a butterfly? Like you buy the kits and oh, yeah. you get them as a caterpillar and then they go into the chrysalis, which is like this black like dark Place and then they come out as like this new beautiful butterfly. And I think that's always a great analogy of what it means to transition, right? What it means to move through different phases, different stages. I love that. But there is, you know, a lot of normal fear that comes when we start to recognize that we are separate from. Also, around the age of seven, from a spiritual perspective, that's when kids start to feel more disconnected from the other side. Usually, often when they're young, they still have that, people would say, they still have that connection to the other side. So they remember it, even if they're not consciously talking about it. And there is research of kids who've shared their experiences with past lives. And you can fact check it. And it's so vivid. It's, it's mind-blowing. Huh.
1: I love that. And, I, you know, I asked about Jamie about the invisible string because that's a book that we've used a lot in our house. And, and, you know, what you said about like separation and separate and all that stuff, like a lot of the, Jamie, I found for my kids that the, a lot of the books about like separation and separateness as, as opposed to like the invisible string. It's like we're all together. We're all connected all the time. All of those separation anxiety really helped our kids with like the death idea. I've been talking to our kids about death since forever just because the man who raised me died before they were born. And, you know, they, sometimes they'll get sad because they never got to meet him. They always see his pictures and I, you know, and I say, but no, he lives on, he lives on in me and he lives on in you. Because for example, he instilled my love of musical theater and I was a professional musical theater actress for a long time. And I sing to my kids and now they sing to me and like, that's him living on. And that's how I, you know, in like, it's a little more tangible to them you know, like it's something he did that now I do and I pass along to you. So this is him living on in you. So that helps them a little. It's not like that would help them, you know, get over a fear of like me dying, James, you know, oh, and Mason. but it's, it's a nice sort of like taking, you know, something of a loved one and passing it along. Like the idea of just continuing things that made them them. So it's, it's you know, not only honoring their memory, but allowing them to live on. And that I know for my so I this is Heidi speaking, I have um twin seven year old girls, and my son will be five in a month. So they're young. And you know, Jamie and my kids are very similar in age but you know, kids are a whole other thing. But I want to talk about your course, which is titled Living Life Backwards, which is so clever and amazing. And I know the course is poised to help people gain a deeper understanding of their purpose here on earth, as well as how to step into their essence, live more courageously, and how to be more comfortable with uncertainty. So can you explain to our listeners how taking a look at their life from death backwards can help them reframe themselves more positively in the present, please. Yeah, and the
0: course is shifting and changing. I'm working on, I'm really working on solidifying it right now, so.
2: But I love that concept personally. So it's I, was, amazing. I was like, you know, I mean, we really put a bow on it. And so often we're avoiding thinking about the end. You're encouraging us to think about the end as a means to get back mm-hmm. to the now. So, I mean, it's just a good rule of thumb. So, could I mean, just walk us through it because it's a big part of your Yeah, process. I think that there's, there's, Again, it, it looks through both
0: psychology and spirituality, which is so important to me because I think often we've we've cut ourselves off from spirituality in a lot of ways. And there's there's a lot of interest now, reemerging interest into spirituality. And so it is both this notion of, OK, if we are at the end of our life, what is that eulogy going to say? What are people going to say about us when they're standing up there? What would we want to say about ourselves when we're standing up there? And if we were to write that now, are we living that way today? Not waiting till, you know, I retire or I get that next job or whatever it is. And again, this is all taking in in the context of, I get it. We all have to live our lives. We're all moms. I got to get my kid to school in the morning, right? Like there's The practicalities of that, but also within those practicalities, are we really pushing ourselves outside of the box to do whatever it is that is our, what I talk about is our essence? So oftentimes people talk about purpose. To me, purpose is limiting. It's like there's one thing for me to be or to do. And how I think about it is essence. Am I expressing the characteristics of my soul? And that can look very different depending on what you value and depending on what the, the work that we'll do in the course around how to express, how to get in touch with what those characteristics are and what you value and what means something to you and are those being expressed. And then when you get to the end, what would that look like? So it's, it's really weaving together all these pieces. And many of the near-death experiencers I've spoken to talk about this concept of a life review, that when you die, and, you know, we've heard this for years in terms of like, you know, you you see everything flash before your eyes or you, you know, you have that experience. And many near-death experiencers will say that what they experience is the world's in terms of how they were to other people and how other people, so they almost like stand in the experience of everybody that they've touched throughout their lives. And then when you think of it that way, right, so you have like the end of your physical life, but then you also have this near death experience view, which is this life review. And it's like, am I touching the people that I want to touch in the ways that I want to touch them on a daily basis? And again, that is how it starts to shift and change who you are and how you are in the world. Because if I'm treating, you know, I, I always have conversations with like the butcher and the person who cuts my deli meat in the, in, when I do my Sunday morning grocery shop, and I know them and I build a relationship with them. And that is that is very intentional for me because we're all people. And like you said, we're all one ultimately so if if I get to that point where I cross over and that life review feels pretty shitty it's not it that to me is not
1: a life well lived every time I think about death, I think about how so we interviewed Rabbi Steve's leader oh, and he, he you know he sits with so many people who are about to make the transition or you know their family that just as the other person made the transition and And he always – he said the thing that stuck with me – I mean, a lot of the things he said stuck with me, but (laughs) he's always like, people always talk about regretting what they didn't do. They don't ever regret what they did. They always regret the life unlived. And I love how the way that you're framing it sort of makes it a little – almost more clear that, like, you don't have that much time, so you have to do the things. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't want to die with all of your hopes and dreams still inside of you and the person that you want to be not yet fully realized. Right you want to be that person today and every day.
0: Right. And again within the the constraints of regular life. I mean,
1: yeah, you course. know, you can't just yes, wouldn't it be lovely but, to to do eat pray lab all the time. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I certainly <laughs> but yes, have, children.
0: Yeah, I certainly <laughs> have those wishes and desires where I'm like, "Oh my god, if I could just like go to that retreat somewhere or do that, you know, spiritual journey, whatever it is." And I have to live and You know, drive carpool and get my kids to school. So, what can I do within the the context and the framework of the life that I have to still be living what feels to me like a meaningful and complete life?
2: I love it. Heidi, do you want to to kind of (laughs) pass perfectly into our last segment? It does. So, the very last segment, segment? do you wait? Do you have a mic, Jamie? I should,
1: I I meant to bring the kids' echo mic. Oh,
2: well, our very last part that we always do is called karma (laughs) (laughs) call. So we're missing Megan today. So Jamie
1: is filling in for her with her amazing vocal skills. Um, But I will explain since I'm the resident yogi that karma is the Sanskrit word for action. So we ask all of our amazing, inspiring, knowledgeable guests, you, what is one small actionable item that our listeners could try for a short period of time that would yield a large result? So small action, big result.
0: Uh... I think I'm going to stick with the theme here and think about in the morning when you wake up, if this was my, if this was it for me today, what do I want my day to look like and how do I want, how do I want to feel and what do I want my interactions
1: to feel like? I love it. Setting that intention for the day is pretty epic.
2: (laughs) There you have it. Well, we can't thank you enough. Look, this is a tricky topic and speaking to you and just hearing it put forth, So frankly and straightforward, that's what it's all about. You know, the more we avoid these tough subjects, the scarier they become. And just like anything, you know, you're only as sick as your secrets and your fears are only as big as they are in your head. But once you speak them out loud, their size diminishes. And so all of this is so important to just have these open conversations about. And as a mom, as both of us being moms, I think you've probably given Heidi and I a lot to think about, too as to how we approach this conversation with our family. So I can't thank you enough, Dr. Robbins. Thank you you so much. share with our listeners where they can find you on the gram and how can they, you know, subscribe to your newsletter or kind of keep abreast of your courses, your podcast, and all that good stuff? Sure. I'm easy.
0: I'm Dr. Amy Robbins everywhere. So on Instagram, on Facebook, which I'm not really on that much, on my website is DrAmyRobbins.com. My podcast is called Life, Death, and the Space Between. And you can find that anywhere you get your podcasts and there is like a gajillion, I think I'm at 270 episodes all on these topics, but really in a way that is hopefully insightful and inspiring, not dreary and
2: depressing and like downtrodden. They really aim to lift people up. Sounds good to me. I think exposure therapy and not being scared of listening to things that, you know, make our brain work a little harder on these tough subjects is never a bad thing. So thank you so thank much for being with, here with us here today. Thank you to everybody at home for joining us. And don't forget to follow us on the gram. We are off the gram podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the show anywhere podcasts can be consumed. So you never miss an episode. We'll see you next time.